John. This is a patient who actually, when I saw her, she was 59. This is a little over a year ago. Presentation with a very short history, developing a fairly large mass in the breast with the skin change of pas d'orange. And at the time of presentation, she had palpable supraclavicular and also palpable X-ray lymph nodes. Rest of the evaluation at that time did not show any signs of any metastatic disease. Tumor mass was approximately 10 centimeters, ERPR negative, and HER2 new positive. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself and what her reaction was in that situation? Well, she's a single woman. Actually, when she came into the office, she came in with her sisters, two of them. No history of any carcinoma of the breast. She works in the hospital transcription office, so was very familiar with a lot of physicians. And was it your sense? It sounds like she had a rapidly growing tumor as opposed to a delay. It sounded like it was rapidly growing from the history that we really could obtain. So, Skip, locally advanced HER2-positive ER-negative breast cancer. What's your general approach, and what do you think you'd be thinking about here? So, you know, heavily swayed and impressed by the abundance now of the trastuzumab and lapatinib data, both for the locally advanced disease. Christofanelli's presentation at San Antonio Breast that looked at lapatinib and then paclitaxel together just showed you how impressive these drugs can be in turning this off. And That I was think actually inflammatory breast that cancer. That was inflammatory breast cancer, correct. Yeah, and that was a specific group. And then you look at some of the data, and just to comment real quickly on that trial of 100 per meter squared at docetaxel versus... 75 per meter squared of docetaxel with carboplatin, both arms getting trastuzumab, and people seem to sort of be surprised that the two arms had similar response rates, similar time to progression. To me, 75 of docetaxel and the carbo was a little better tolerated in my practice than 100 per meter squared of the docetaxel. I think either one of those would be fine with the trastuzumab. That's probably what I would give. I get a feeling like I get a little better, quicker response with the docetaxel in some of these patients. And so a little bit of a discussion, but probably docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab. What about the Buzdar regimen, including an anthracycline? So the Buzdar regimen, which was to give the paclitaxel with the trastuzumab and then the FEC chemotherapy in sequence, stopped early, 40 patients, going to be hard to get that repeated and done. I still have just shied away from the anthracyclines and trastuzumab for the cardiac toxicity reasons, feeling like that's a great trial result, and I certainly believe that the result is that effective, but thinking there's probably other options where I don't have to push the cardiac toxicity issue. Same question to you, Antonio. How do you think you treat her, and what do you think about the Buzzdar approach? Yeah, so our group at Hopkins was a major contributor to the intergroup trial N9831 for patients with node-positive, HER2-positive breast cancer. So we have become very comfortable with the sequential regimen of AC every three weeks, followed by weekly paclitaxel with trastuzumab. So in someone who's presenting with locally advanced disease where surgery is potentially still an endpoint here and she has no evidence of metastatic disease, I probably would have begun that regimen, the AC, followed by 12 weeks of paclitaxel and trastuzumab, and then reassess. I am impressed by some of the data that have been presented and published on the use of trastuzumab with chemotherapy or even trastuzumab without chemotherapy as a single agent in the pre-op setting in locally advanced disease, the data from Jenny Chang, in addition to the Buzzdoor data. I have not used combination antracycline with trastuzumab. I think we've been using sequential antracycline and trastuzumab. In our own anecdote in our group, we have been seeing several patients having pathologic complete response with the use of pre-op chemo trastuzumab. Either you know where the Buzzdoor regimen is heading. At one point, there was a discussion about doing it in a randomized trial. Is that going to happen? 
I know it's being circulated. We passed on participating. So there is a trial doing it? There's a trial. No, there's a trial being postulated because it really requires a large number of patients. I mean, you're going to be getting into four to 600 patients. There to, were discussions about doing it as a combined NSCBP ECOSOC study, which right. is not happening as right. a combined study in that fashion. I wonder, too, whether or not all the things that fleshed out in terms of the TOPO2 story and the anthracycline story out of the BCIRG trial maybe kind of has pulled people back from the idea of anthracyclines with trastuzumab. And Tony, what's been your take on that whole story that's evolved over the last few years? I mean, the whole issue that from the first, we have now so far two interim presentations, analysis of the BCI or GO6 study. And the first presentation suggesting that perhaps you could use TOPO2 to identify patients that would truly benefit, that would be about a third of the population with TOPO2 abnormalities. And those would be potentially the patients that would benefit from the use of an intracycline regimen, while patients with doggy TOPO2 abnormality would not require an intracycline, could receive a non-intracycline trastuzumab regimen. And then we had a second interim analysis the year out. And actually, the funny thing is that a lot of people then left that first meeting in 2005 and said, Antonio, excited of the possibility that now we could have one fish assay that could measure your HER2 and you could also have a separate probe for the TOPO2 and you would have both answers and things would be wonderful. And a year later, the data essentially disappeared as far as the potential benefit from using TOPO2 in that setting. And I think it cautions us towards being careful with interim analysis from all of these data. There's a great interest on the whole issue of TOPO2 and intracyclines, and there were a lot of presentations at ASCO 2006 from various groups, including some publications in the New England Journal as well from the Canadian group. But the big issue is that there's a huge controversy at this point about what kind of TOPO2 two abnormalities you're looking at, amplifications, deletions, abnormalities. So I think at this point, we should be cautious about it. From a practical perspective, Skip, what came out of that second presentation was the feeling of a lot of people, and I think this is driving the BETH study that we talked about that's being done, TCH plus or minus BEV, was that TCH was as effective as an anthracycline regimen without the cardiac toxicity. What was your read on that, and how has it affected, if at all, your practice? We participated in the BCRG-06 trial, so we had some experience. I was very fortunate in the randomization. The six patients I put on that trial, five of the six received the 75 with the carboplatin. And actually, I made the comment I thought that was actually easier to take than 100 premier squared adocetaxel. I believe it. I think these patients do so well that it's great to think about the cardiac toxicity. I mean, now we're 10 years into trastuzumab, and there's a lot of people in the clinic that have her two positive breast cancer that have been alive that long and are doing well. So this is now a subgroup of cancer patients that are going to do well for a long time. So when you plan their initial therapy, we ought to do what we can to minimize some of these risks. So whatever I can do to minimize the cardiac toxicity is great. I had the good fortune or the unfortunate of being on the DSMB when they did the initial Herceptin adjuvant trials for the intergroup. And those were tough phone calls about the cardiac toxicity. Those trials really straddled the fence. They almost got closed a couple times. And whereas it's actually an interim hold on one of them. So it swayed me to use TCH fairly often. And Antonio, what is your thought about this debate about the optimal chemo? The way I read it was that you could either give an anthracycline or 
trastuzumab in a topo two positive patient, and either one would have pretty much the same effect. At least that's what they were trying to say. And it is what the data were showing with the second interim analysis, in that you might even get away and not have to use the trastuzumab for those patients. Once again, and it's an interim analysis, and I think I just want us to be cautious at this point, and I don't think we have sufficient data to essentially abandon the use of trastuzumab in patients with her 2 positive disease if they're going to use an intracycline. We'll need to see what the actual data with full maturity will show. So it's not enough at this point for me to... Well, let's follow up with the patient. The patient was treated with TCH for four courses. She had an excellent response really at the beginning of the first course of therapy with a lot of the inflammatory changes going down, axillary nodes decreasing, the mass in the breast decreasing significantly. At the end of four courses, we then proceeded with localized therapy, doing the mastectomy at that time, and followed that up with radiation. And the pathologic response was? It was partial. There was still tumor remaining, okay. but there was a lot of necrotic tissue. And lymph nodes? Lymph nodes in the axillary were still positive. Okay. So has she gotten further treatment? Well, she remained on her septin through that period of time and recently has had evidence of recurrent tumor on the chest wall and the supraclavicular nodes again increasing in size. Reevaluation at that point also showed evidence of bone metastases. How long has it been since she's had the trastuzumab? Well, she still remains on oh, it. She's on it now. Today. So this was in the second, the recurrence in the second of trastuzumab. Right. How would you be thinking this through, Skip? Well, that's concerning, and it's concerning about the lack of duration of response here. This is that subgroup of patients in our investigational drug experience that seems to benefit from adding on the new biologics, adding on the heat shock protein inhibitors, and adding on some of those agents. So I think that's where we're going to be in two or three years. For right now, I've been impressed with lapatinib and inflammatory. Our best responses in the phase one and early phase two trials with lapatinib were in the inflammatory subsets. Neil Spector had some data about the biology of inflammatory possibly benefiting more from the tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So this would probably be a patient that I'd switch to lapatinib and capecitabine at this point. John, did you give her radiation after surgery? Yes. So this is occurring in the radiation field. Right. What's your experience been with that combination of capecitabine and lapatinib? So. I think the doses are a little high. Lapatinib, I think anything over 1,000 milligrams, you're probably getting enough drug in. We're all kind of handicapped from the package insert of capecitabine and how the trials are being done. So I kind of dosed down the capecitabine. The lapatinib, I started at 1250. In general, it's a lot of nursing intervention, talking to the patients about the diarrhea. The rash has actually been fairly minimal, but I think it's a duration effect, so you want to keep them on the therapy and get that capecitabine dose to something they can tolerate, realizing lapatinib is probably the most important part of the regimen, but it's something we've adopted. I'm still shocked that about half the doctors in the country have not yet given lapatinib as a dose, so I think there is a lack of experience out there with it. What would you be thinking about for this lady? I probably would be thinking along the same lines. She's progressing on trastuzumab despite some initial response. She did not have the most optimal response at the time of surgery, so perhaps it's not a surprise that her recurrence is happening while on trastuzumab. So I would be thinking about a lapatinib regimen. I would move away from trastuzumab, so lapatinib and capecitabine is an option. And then on an aside, I mean, the fact that uh, I think all of us are beginning to use this combination in clinical practice and all the confusion related to the current package recommendations of this regimen where lapatinib is to be given with an empty stomach, capecitabine is to be given with a full stomach, and what happens 
the fact that potentially we could even be using much more lapatinib than we needed to because there's some suggestion that actually you may have even improved oral absorption with lapatinib and food, allowing you to use a lower dose, but these studies have not been done. Do you actually recommend that to your patients specifically? Do you try to get it? We're talking about adherence, you know? It's a problem. I mean, you're talking about so how many pills a day? Five pills of lapatinib, <coughs> and then at Hopkins we have a fixed dose. That's a separate story, but the whole issue of capsigabine being dosed by BSA, which there is no science behind it. The uh, measured levels of 5-FU following oral capsigabine are so unpredictable and less predictable than what you get with IV 5-FU. And we actually have, we saw a couple of years ago, a phase two study with fixed dose capesagabine at 1,500 milligrams twice a day for all patients. We are reaching the first stage of accrual right now. So at this point, back to your question, Neil, I think we are stuck in terms of the recommendations we have to make to patients in that that's how these drugs are to be dosed. You got to do it simply, though, just to make a comment. So I agree with what Antonio is saying. So we're doing capesagabine, breakfast, dinner, Lapatinib when you go to bed, shouldn't eat within a couple hours going to bed anyway. Take your lapatinib pills and go to sleep. You got to give them something really structured to get their hands around. Antonio, if you have someone who's like an 83-year-old woman, you give 1,500 BID. It seems like a big dose to me. I don't know if it is. I don't have anybody on the study right now at the age of 83. But the reality is that, I mean, this is a drug that requires three enzymes for activation. And so chances are this is going to have very little to do with height and weight and a lot to do with your genotype. And I think we simply don't know at this point what is the optimal dosing schedule for these drugs. And cranning clearance. I mean, you know, if you did it in that year, that, that lady's absolutely. cranning clearance is 30, you know, with your 83-year-old, just as a guess. So I would agree with you. I think you've yeah. got to be careful there.